So this morning we continue in our study of prayer. And I hope this study has been, you know, for you guys, uh, encouraging for your soul and affections. I hope that it's encouraged you, encouraged us, I should say, to take a closer look at the prayers in scripture, uh, these Pauline prayers and, and other prayers. And at the same time, maybe it's been convicting and confronting um, for us, but when the Lord reminds us that we are needy people um, in need of his grace, we are dependent people that need to go to him for help and for grace, it's God's kindness toward us to keep us humble in that way. So I pray that you know, this class continues to be that for you if it has. So up until this point, we've looked at Paul's framework for prayer. I'm gonna give us a brief, short history that brings us to our class today. We looked at Paul's framework for prayer, um, how, he, how his in prayers instructs how we should and pray for other, what we should pray for other believers. We thought through what Paul would consider to be worthy petitions, those prayers that keep in mind the believer's ultimate end, which is heaven and holiness. And in that, happiness. We shared some examples of how we can pray for others based off of what we see in scripture, how Paul's prayers inform how we should pray. And in our praying for people, we should have a healthy affection for them and a longing for their own holiness, growth, and maturity. So we should have a mutual affection for each other and each other's growth and maturity in Christ. Because this, this walk is a as a community of believers, it's a body of Christ. So uh, we don't just look inward, but we also look outward. And we have genuine concern for each other's growth in Christ. So we pray for each other. We encourage one another in that way. And um, we desire and pray that other believers be filled with a knowledge of God's will uh, to live a life that's pleasing to God, which is something that Pastor Will talked about in the past couple of weeks. So that's sort of been our journey on this road of prayer in this class up until this point. But today, we'll pause and sort of step back and talk about excuses we give for why we don't pray. We all know that we should pray. Um, I'm sure none of us would say, well, I don't think it's important, so I don't pray. We wouldn't say that with our lips, but we do express that at times. Uh, We know it's important. We know that we are dependent creatures, that we need help and grace. We know that we should pray, we know that we must pray, but still, all of us, including myself, have reasons and excuses for not praying. So, if you think about that, we know we should pray, but we don't pray. Um, Why do you think that is? What are some reasons um, or excuses that we give for not praying? And it doesn't have to be something you know, personal necessarily for you, but just generally Christians struggle with this. Why do you think we know that we should pray, but still don't pray? What are you guys' thoughts on that? I feel like we're too busy or distracted. Ah. Yep, yep. That's actually one of our points. Kyle? Too tired, fall asleep. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, amen. <laughs> I, do, I deal with that. <laughs> Orlando, you had a thought? I thought I saw your hand, okay. Anybody else? <laughs> like, I don't want it. <laughs> a sense of unworthiness that, that we don't have the yeah. Yeah. right to approach the throne. Yep. Yeah, that's another one of our points. Man, y'all been reading my notes, trying to steal my fire. Anybody else? What's that? It sounds like confession time. You won't do it 
here, but yes. <laughs> Personally, as you think through these things and want to confess, you should. It's good. So those are, those are good reasons. I think those are reasons that we all think about and struggle with for why we don't pray. We know to pray. We know it's important. We know we're dependent, but we don't pray. Now, as we work through this topic, we'll actually look at some of the things you guys mentioned. But we have to remember that the scripture is true. Uh, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. All of us struggle with the same things. <laughs> um, all of us struggle with being tired or being too busy or being anxious or whatever it is. These different things that keep us from not praying. First Corinthians 10, 13 is true. Um, it's, it's not new. All right. So this subject is being taught for mutual edification. Right. So uh, I need it as much as as much as you guys do. So our first point here, actually, Josh made this point that. Um, I'm too busy to pray. I'm too busy to pray. So we live in a culture that I think takes pride in overworking. From work to recreation, there's constantly rushing. We're always moving from one thing to the next, then to the next, then to the next, right? So we have school, we have full-time jobs, we have families, we have extracurricular activities. And when we think about excuses, for why we don't pray, busyness is probably at the top of the list. I know it is for me. And so we just don't pray because we're too busy. And when we stop rushing and running, because we're, we've overworked ourselves, we're just too tired. So we just sort of want to sit and do something mindless, you know? So we turn on the TV or we scroll social media. And as you know, with social media, the internet, 30 seconds turns into three hours. And then after that, you're more tired and exhausted than you were before because you spent the past three hours looking at everybody else's dressed up life. And then you start questioning your own life and existence and happiness. And that cycle of busyness of life and thought continues. So how do we get out of that? <clears throat> it's very frustrating. I've done that <laughs> way too many times. So how does the Bible instruct us on how we should think about this? One of the first scriptures that come to mind for you and for me as well is probably Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. So this story tells us about how Jesus viewed busyness. So let's read, uh, turn to Luke chapter 10 and we'll read verses 38 to 42. Luke 10, 38 to 42. So again, we're thinking about the excuse or reason that I'm just too busy to pray. Someone want to read those verses for us? Verse, verses 38 to 42 in Luke 10.
Thank you, Rusty. <clears throat> so Martha was taking care of all the people who were in her home, um, and including Jesus, serving him in that way. Um, but if you notice here, <clears throat> first, Martha wasn't doing a bad thing necessarily. She was actually doing a good thing. But the good thing that she was doing was done with an overly busy and anxious heart, and it was distracting from the better thing. So she was distracted with, the Bible says, much serving. Then her anxious busyness made her agitated with her sister and with the Lord. So she questions God, and her question wasn't a genuine question. It was actually an accusation. We know this because she tries to command the Lord to tell Mary to help her. <clears throat> what did she say? <clears throat> Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So you sort of see the, the, the heart of this, this question. She, she questions the Lord. And Jesus' simple answer was, Mary, Mary, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has cho sorry, Mar Martha, did I say Mary, Mary? I meant Martha, Martha. Um, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So Martha neglected the privilege to sit at the Lord's feet while he was in her home. What Martha did is something that I think we all do. Neglecting communion with God because we are overly busy and anxious. And being in ministry as a pastor, it can be easy to neglect communion, that temptation is there to, to neglect communion with God because I'm serving God. So I'm neglecting communion with the Lord, it, this temptation, because I'm serving the Lord. And it can be easy to sort of get into a routine of doing things that are good things that can at times distract me from the better thing. So I'm not immune to this. And whatever area of life we find ourselves in, and whatever God has given us to do, we have to ask, am I too busy? And as the saying goes, if you're too busy to pray, then you're just too busy. <clears throat> if Jesus himself was not too busy to pray, then we can't afford <laughs> to be too busy not to pray, right? Okay, <clears throat> let's go on to the next point on your note sheet. I feel too spiritually dry to pray. I feel too spiritually dry to pray. So some of us here are better at setting time aside uh, to pray, or we're just in a season where we are more disciplined at the time. We get up early, we get breakfast, maybe we get to work early, and you can imagine yourself sitting in the break room, nobody's there yet, it's quiet, and this could not be a better morning to have devotion and prayer and you open your Bible, you read, and then you go to pray, and you feel stale. You feel empty. You, you don't feel that zeal to pray. And you just don't feel like you can pray sincerely. Whether or not we give into I think, those feelings, all of us go through this sometimes, just feeling too spiritually dry to pray. <clears throat> it could be stress. It could be sleep deprivation, to Kyle's point, um, unsolved confrontation that caused bitterness. Whatever is going on at that moment, you feel like the throne room of God has been closed off to you. You've believed a lie. So 
what's wrong with this approach to prayer? I feel too spiritually dry to pray. First, the problem is that you believe that approaching God in prayer is based on how you feel, right? So if you're well-rested, if you're excited or feeling spiritually pious at the moment, then the Lord will joyfully accept you in prayer, right? But is that true? Is the basis of our praying being, our prayers being accepted by the Heavenly Father based upon us or our feelings? Is it based upon our own piety or even our own excitement at the moment? Or is it based upon the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness on our behalf? So whether you feel spiritually dry or feel zealous and purity and spirituality at the moment, remember that your access to the throne is, the access to the throne of grace is based on Christ's blood and obedience, not your own. Even in those times where you feel spiritually dry and discouraged, feeling spiritually dry should not, should actually make us, I think, more aware of our need and what God has provided on our behalf so that we can come to him with our requests. We do this while remembering that our requests are accepted because of Christ's pure and blameless spirituality, not your own weak and wavering and ebbing and flowing spirituality. It's based on Christ's righteousness. So there's another, a second issue working here when we say, I feel too spiritually dry to pray. Um, And the issue there is that's happening in the heart when we say that is that we, um, again, in a similar way, are putting our eyes on the wrong thing. The issue is that we think that prayer is less of an obligation, again, because we don't feel like praying, right? So when we do this, we make who the final authority? us, right? So we're placing the authority in our feelings. There are really two masters at work here. It's our own feeling and entrusting ourselves to them, or it's the word of God and entrusting ourselves to him. Right? So what does the Bible say? When I feel too spiritually dry, um, I don't feel like I have access to the throne. I'm struggling here. I'm discouraged. Um, My feelings are saying just you can do it later, you can do it tomorrow, just, you know, you'll be fine. You don't need to pray. But the Bible tells us in Romans 12 too, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And in Luke 18, Jesus' parable of the persistent widow speaks to this. So let's turn to Luke 18, and we're going to reverse verses 4 to 5. <clears throat> I have that. Luke 18, verses 4 to 5. So this parable talks about a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. This judge is being persistently bothered by a widow who wants justice. And Luke 18, 4 to 5, says this. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God, nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And what does Jesus say? 
And will not God give justice to the elect who cry to him day and night? Now, the point here is not that God is like a disrespectful, begrudging judge. But Jesus gives an example of a corrupt judge. And then he says that, and he says that even this corrupt judge responds because of this widow's persistence. And then do you not think that the righteous God will answer in our persistence? Now, our, our prayers are part of God's grace to us. And he doesn't only give us the opportunity to pray, but God actually gives us our requests as they are according to his divine will. So it's not simply, well, I can pray, I get the opportunity to pray. It's good and it's a privilege and it's great. But the Lord actually does give us what we ask for when we ask right and when it's according to his divine will. <clears throat> so that should be encouraging to us. You can pray and the Lord, the Lord hears and then he does answer. <clears throat> Anthony Burgess understood the necessity of prayer as the doctrine of God's sovereign use of means to accomplish his ends. God's sovereign use of means to accomplish his ends are the prayers of the church. So if you're feeling too spiritually dry to pray, pray that God would fill you afresh with the spirit and let that actually be your prayer. When you're there and you feel discouraged and you feel spiritually dry, Lord, uh, encourage my discouraged heart. That's a prayer. Um, Lord, fill me afresh with your spirit. Give me a, a desire and a zeal for holiness and for your word. That's a prayer, right? So we don't have to think that we need to clean up um, this prayer necessarily and then come before the throne and then make the request. Um, and you can just, the, the Psalms are so encouraging because you see this wide range, this spectrum of the prayers in the life of the Christian um, from deep downcastness to sort of this height and spiritual zeal and um, and um, spirituality and it's the sincerity in prayer. It's okay in prayer if we come with brokenness <laughs> so that the Lord answers. That's, that's a, good, a good thing. Okay? So, any thoughts on that before we go to the next point? Would you, um, would you recommend as like a healthy Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the um, elements of prayer is confession. Um, personally, in, in public prayer and in corporate worship, it does reorient our minds and hearts to remember that the issue is not God, it's not the Word, it's not the Spirit, but it's, it's us. And it, it does put us in a, it reminds us that we are dependent creatures, in, even in that way, um, that I'm faltering here in some way. Lord, uh, please forgive me for this and give me grace. Give me, um, sharpen my affections and, and vision of you. So, absolutely. I saw a hand here somewhere. Anthony? Yeah, amen. Amen. Yep, because of what Christ has done, we can approach 
the throne of grace with boldness. Um, and of course, the boldness is not boasting in ourselves. Mm -hmm. but that's the point uh, because of what Christ has accomplished for us. So, yep. Yep. <clears throat> All right. So let's jump down to the next point on your note sheet, which is I feel no need to pray. I feel no need to pray. Does anybody ever say that? Do you ever sit and say, I don't feel like I need to pray? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe we won't say it, but <laughs> we live in that way at times. I don't feel the need to pray. Um, it's been said, and I heard this from, I don't remember who, listened to a podcast some, some time ago, and I'm sure he got it from somewhere, but it's been said that two things keep us from prayer, busyness and blessedness. Busyness and blessedness. When we feel that we don't need to pray, it's actually not um, in hard seasons, but usually it's in happy seasons. <clears throat> when we feel that things are going well, we tend to feel independent. We feel confident in life and work. We feel good. We feel spiritually strong. In these seasons, it may not be busyness, but blessedness that keeps us from praying. So God is blessing our work or ministry or family life, and we slowly become less aware of our weaknesses and become self-assured. So we're enjoying God's grace and his kindness toward us, but we're forgetting that it was grace and kindness that allowed us to have the things that we have. It was God, not us. Now, in Deuteronomy 6, God has to give Israel this similar warning. After he tells them to do all that he has commanded to keep his statutes, he says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So the Lord is about to bring them into a time of blessedness, of strength, of wealth, of prosperity. But before he does that, this is what he says to them. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 10 to 12 for us. <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 6. So Deuteronomy 6, starting at verse 10, it says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Take care lest you forget. So the sin here is actually forgetfulness that the Lord has given these things. <clears throat> At times when we become self-assured, God humbles us through his afflictive providence. 
Blessed is the one who has a contrite and lowly spirit, and remembers that. The one who in seasons of busyness and blessedness recognize the one from whom their help comes. Times of prosperity give us the opportunity to practice more thankfulness in prayer. So the more things that the Lord graciously gives to you and brings into your life, the more opportunities you have to give thanks for those specific things. A way for us not to forget God is to be thankful to him always in everything he graciously gives. So in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that is to come after him. Ecclesiastes 7.14. Who knows how long those temporary material blessings will last? Who knows how long the Lord will keep you in a season where you're experiencing mountaintop spirituality, piety, and devotion? The Puritans were very aware of mountaintop spirituality and valley spirituality. Uh, They felt a deep awareness to be just as devotional and thankful in seasons of adversity as in seasons of prosperity. So when you, when we start to feel like we don't need to pray, we need to stop and consider and pray that God would keep us humble and thankful so that we remember that he is the fountain from which all good things come. Um, not saying that we don't and shouldn't give thanks in times of adversity. And I'm not saying that every good thing that God gives, um, the issue is that he's giving a good thing, which is why you're not, we, we don't pray. Uh, the point is that we ought to be giving thanks in all things, in all seasons. But we need to be watchful, not simply for adversity as it tries to strip away our faith, but also blessedness as we become self-assured and that threatens our faith. Okay. Any thoughts on that before we go to the next point? Okay. The next point on your note sheet, I am too bitter to pray. I'm too bitter to pray. So we cannot avoid the world that we live in, and we cannot avoid being sinned against in a fallen world. This is part of life under the sun. People of every tribe, tongue, and nation experiences injustice, suffering at the hands of other people. At work, we might deal with bosses or coworkers who seem to have one aim. When they get up in the morning, they put their clothes on, they get their breakfast, they come to work, and they're there to make sure that our job is harder. That's what it feels like. (laughs) Right, Ron? (laughs) Just joking. We love working together. I lost my point saying that. (laughs) So we deal with frustrations and family relationships with siblings, with parents, um, unsolved issues and bitterness. But then we come to church and we're amongst this family and we're with redeemed sinners, uh, with those who are striving for holiness and still there's sin. Who'd have thought? Sin in the church. We sin and are sinned against, and now the place of refuge, the church, becomes a place of strife and bitterness. And relationships become awkward, and we find ourselves avoiding others because it's just easier not to deal with it. 
Um, even if you think about your favorite podcast preacher or a church that maybe you went to in the past and you compare every church to that church, um, that church is filled with various sins. Um, it's not, that church isn't the glorified saints. Uh, sin is there. It's in the people, it's in the church, it's apparent sin, it's hidden sin. Um, it's always there. And Paul himself, he wrote to churches and people that he most likely abused and threatened. <clears throat> Acts 9 says that when Saul was converted to Paul, he attempted to join the disciples. And, when they, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Right, that's, that's reasonable, right? He's persecuting the church, he's killing Christians, dragging them off to prison. You know, it's, it's, it's understandable why they would have their suspicions, right? <clears throat> so do you not think that maybe bitterness was amongst those Christians to whom Paul is writing letters? They're getting a letter and they're reading it from Paul who maybe persecuted or abused them in some way? In Philippians 2, Paul has to entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, we don't know the details of that specific situation, but I would speculate that there was likely a situation where there were two believers who were fighting and there was probably bitterness. So what do we do when the Bible tells us to pray for people who we feel slandered and mistreated us personally? We've suffered at their hands. We know that nothing happens apart from the sovereign will of God, but that torment came through this person. What do we do? The Bible tells us to pray for them. How do we uh, manage our affections and rightly feed them with the word at this time? <clears throat> what do we do when we feel this deep bitterness? And not, not only do we not pray for them, but we refuse to pray for them. We just can't pull ourselves to pray for them. Is the bottom rung of bitterness a bad view or an incorrect view of God's sovereignty? Um, yeah, I, I think that that is definitely because ultimately when we grumble or complain, those grumbling and complainings are ultimately unto the, the Lord. They're, they're putting the Lord on the throne. Um, or they're putting him sort of in the courtroom and saying, you're guilty. You brought this to me. And because we don't understand it, maybe, or because it's frustrating and it hurts, um, yes, I think it can be aimed at God. I do think that there is a mourning that is not necessarily um, a bitterness that says, Lord, why have you brought that? I think we can mourn rightly um, over injustices and um, and have a righteous indignation. Um, but we're thinking about what well, you said, bitterness. Yes. To answer the question about bitterness, I think it is. The, the heart of bitterness is ultimately a complaint against the Lord. Um, it says that whatever the Lord has brought upon you, um, and we usually think, sometimes we think, well, I don't deserve this, um, or don't you see that I'm striving for holiness? You know, why would you bring this? My life is hard enough. Why are you bringing some other thing? Um, and I think usually when we reach down in our hearts and we feel around and we discover that it, it's against the Lord, um, whether it's against a coworker, like a spouse or children even, um, it forgets that God is sovereign and that all these things only ever work 
for the good of the Christian. Um, so it's only ever serving us bad, you know, afflictive providence circumstances that we may not understand or agree with. It's only ever serving the Christian. Um, so we should not be bitter or complain in that way, but I, I think it's a, it's a good point. It's a valid point. So how should we feel about this bitterness that we feel? Matthew 6, 14 to 15. I have this here. I haven't used it yet because I'm forgetting what I put there and what I did. Um, but Matthew 6 is here. So let me have someone read verses 14 and 15 for us. Okay, so again, we're thinking about I'm too bitter to pray. <clears throat> um, something's happened to us that came through the hands of uh, maybe someone we know, someone we love, maybe someone we don't, and we feel embittered, and so we don't want to pray for them. So in looking at Matthew 6 here, the idea here is not that by our forgiving others, we can earn the Father's forgiveness. That's not what he's saying but our willingness to forgive others even when it's very very hard proves that we have experienced forgiveness from god but even though our transgressions against god were way worse than any sin that could have been committed against us um, this helps us when we think about forgiveness so again what do we do here we pray that the Lord would help us to forgive the person. That's a prayer. And the gospel reminds us of our own need for forgiveness that God provided by his own initiative. He was the first to act in our repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. <clears throat> D.A. Carson said, because we know ourselves to be sinners in need of forgiveness, we recognize that to ask for forgiveness while we withhold it from others is nothing more than cheap, religious, hypocritical talk. Mm. Ephesians 4, 31, 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and clamor be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, some would even look at this and say, we cannot extend forgiveness to someone who does not want it, someone who doesn't ask. Are we permitted then to keep forgiveness locked in the cabin of our hearts until the offender uses the key of forgiveness to unlock it? Is that a right way to view forgiveness? Do we have the liberty to grant forgiveness to whomever we choose once they take the first step to ask. Now that sounds maybe pious and noble, but you know what's missing from that? The gospel. You did not initiate repentance. And then God sort of responded to that. Let's, let's think deeply and carefully here. You didn't care to have God's forgiveness before he initiated and acted upon your hard and hostile heart. Your repentance was a gift, a gift granted to you based on a covenant made between the Father and the Son before the foundation of the world. A covenant of redemption 
in which the second person of the Trinity and taking on himself human nature joyfully and willingly agreed to die for your sins. Who was the first to act? God was. <clears throat> to say they didn't ask for my forgiveness is an abominable excuse for not extending forgiveness. It denies the gospel. You will die with more people not having uh, asked for your forgiveness than those who have. And then you will enter glory to have perfect and unblemished communion with the God who has forgiven you at the cost of his only begotten son. When you're dealing with bitterness, pray that God would give you a forgiving heart. Meditate on the covenant of grace and allow the balm of God's kindness to soften your heart again. Now, that doesn't mean <laughs> that we shouldn't ask for forgiveness when we've sinned. Of course you ask for forgiveness. Of course you make it right before you come to the throne, but before you come to the Lord's Supper to eat. Of course, you ought to be asking for forgiveness. But to say, I cannot forgive this person, I cannot for forgive that person, I will not forgive that person, I refuse until they come and ask, I think is missing the gospel. If I'm wrong there, you can come and talk to me afterwards. We can have a conversation. But I think I'm right. <laughs> going to piggyback off of what Sabrina said. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> um, so one last point or text I want to uh, look at before we move forward. Um, turn to 2 Corinthians 2. And we're going to read verses 5 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Okay, so in this um, context here that we're going to read five verses five through eleven, so Paul deals with this um, issue that we're going to read in his first letter. There's a man who's um, sleeping with his father's wife, um, his stepmom, or whatever, and Paul addresses that and says, "The sin is amongst you. Um, you think you're righteous. You think you're holy. Um, address this sin. <laughs> Put this man out of the church. That's how the church deals with sin." don't deal with it in the same way the world does we deal with it differently and we say if someone is acting like an unbeliever then we give them over that the Lord may that they may repent and come to a recognition of their need for Christ so that's an aside but Paul deals with this in his first letter in his second letter here 2 Corinthians 2 verse 5 speaking to, to the same issue of this man who had his father's wife he says for if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. 
for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So this is the man who had his father's wife who has repented. Verse eight, he says, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you to know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. <clears throat> so the point I want to make here is that Paul associates unforgiveness with falling to the devices of Satan, being outwitted by him. So as the spirit tells us here, let's not be ignorant of his designs, right? It's, it's plain here that his, Paul could have uh, sort of worded this and addressed this from different angles, but the spirit here is saying that you're, their, their unforgiveness, their unwillingness to forgive, he associates to the devices of the evil one. And maybe we don't think about unforgiveness and bitterness in those terms, um, but Paul is writing to a church here and he's giving them instruction um, on how, how they ought to live together with one another in this area of forgiveness and repentance, okay? <clears throat> All right, so we'll cover the last couple points here Quickly, any any thoughts on that last point? I'm too bitter to to uh, pray. Okay, <clears throat> last couple points here. Next point on your list. I'm too ashamed to pray. I'm too ashamed to pray. Shame actually pushes us to hide from God. It moves us to escapism. Hiding from God and coming boldly before the throne are opposites. They don't work together. When we try to hide from God, we're actually forgetting about the nature of God, that God is spirit, that he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, that he's omniscient, he's all-knowing. And we forget about his omnisapience, that he is all-wise. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13, do I have that one? says this. You can turn there or just listen as I read it. Hebrews 4 verses 12 to 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, we all understand what it feels like to not pray because we feel too ashamed. If you've ever struggled in a season of sin um, or struggled with sin in any way at any time and felt the weight of that sin, then we, we understand this. <clears throat> the darkness of sin hides from the light. But when the believer hides from God because of sin, usually it's because we're treating him like a man. We expect him to respond like our heavenly, our, our earthly fathers and people in general. When people are offended, what do they do? They hold you at a distance until they recover from the offense. You break the awkward tension with a smile or a shoulder touch or a compliment, 
and then you get back on their good side. <clears throat> That's a lot of the times how we interact with one another or maybe how the world interacts with one another. But God is not like men. He doesn't have mood swings. He doesn't accept you because you make him feel good. The fact that God knows you inside and out and has brought you into a right relationship with him, knowing all of your sin should cause us to run back to the only one who can forgive <clears throat> in this way. The only one who can say, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for, Isaiah 6, 7. Don't let shame keep you from praying, is the point. But run back to the freedom of conscience and the boldness in prayer that you have as a result of the joyful knowledge that we have been accepted by a holy God because of his grace. So let that feeling of shame drive you back to your heavenly father. He doesn't keep us at bay. He doesn't stiff arm us when we sin and say, okay, you've really, I told you not to do this. I told you not to do this. And then we do it again and he holds us at bay while he sort of cools down and then he's okay I feel better now come uh, God is not like man <clears throat> we repent absolutely we come before the throne of grace with confession absolutely and our heavenly father who loves us and knows us accepts us because of what Christ has done on our behalf <clears throat> so don't, don't turn your gaze from Christ to yourself okay um, okay, last point here. I am content with mediocrity. Some Christians don't pray because they become complacent. They're content with a Christianity that loves Christ but doesn't want to be inconvenienced. They may affirm Christian claims and external moral pietism, but they don't really seem to be waging a war against their own sin. Although it's easy for them to see the sin in others and point out the way that others may be falling short. When Christianity becomes just another thing that we have along with the spouse, the house, the dog, and the white picket fence, we need to examine ourselves. When we want God, but also want to maintain a social status or popularity, we need to examine ourselves. <clears throat> I don't know if anyone here may fit that description, but you should know that friendship with the world means enmity with God. The Bible calls this type of mediocrity adultery. James 4.4 says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you, but he gives more grace. The Lord opposes the proud, the self-righteous, the indifferent, the world lover, but he gives grace to the humble. So submit yourself to God. Resist worldly temptation, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, okay? The truth is that all of us find ourselves struggling in these different areas. Neglecting prayer because we're too busy, because we feel too dry spiritually, because we don't feel like we need to pray, and bitterness, shame, and complacency all are excuses for why we don't pray either. But the Lord gives more grace. So pray that the Lord would guard your heart in these different areas of temptation. And pray for one another. Um, give thought to each other's maturity in Christ. As you pray for yourselves, pray for the church. 
um, as you pray for yourselves and pray for the church, pray for your pastors. As you pray for your local church, pray for sister churches and other churches in Orlando and Florida. And just, again, no temptation has overtaken you, overtaken us that is uncommon to man. Christians in general deal with and struggle with these different reasons and excuses for why we don't pray. So let's pray. And the Lord is gracious and he answers. Okay? So any thoughts before we pray and close out? Any questions? Yes, absolutely. Amen. And that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble. Yep. Amen. It's a perfect verse for that. Yep. Amen. Anybody else want to share thought, question? Okay. Let me pray for us. Lord, we recognize um, more often than we care to admit, more often than we want, that we just don't pray, that we come up with excuses for why we shouldn't pray, uh, that we have many excuses for why we don't pray. And Lord, I just pray that you would continue to sanctify us in this area of prayer, that your word would be something that um, is really what we meditate on day and night, um, hiding your word in our hearts so that we don't sin against you in this way of prayerlessness, because you do call us to be constantly in prayer um, about all things at all times. And we just pray that you would give us grace and that you would remind us that Christ is our righteousness so that we would um, take our attention off of our feelings, that we would take our attention off of other people Um, that you would address our bitterness, that you would address our busyness, that you would address our our hearts when we don't do the right thing in seasons of blessedness, um, and that you would um, address our shamefulness and these different things that keep us from praying. I pray that you would work in our heart a greater desire to pray and pray that you would sustain us by your word, Lord, and remind us to pray for each other and just to make us be a praying people a people of uh, confession, a people of thanksgiving, a people of gratefulness. Uh, And may you glorify yourself, our triune God, as your people are given to prayer and as you answer according to your your wisdom and your infinite power. Um, But remind us that you do actually answer and and that we can find deep encouragement there. And um, may you bless us now as we go into the sanctuary to hear the preached word, to sing, to pray together. Um, to take the Lord's Supper. And may you bless our Lord's day for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.